These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Shapililiuma has done a remarkable amount of conquest, first as a general helping the Hittite Empire recover from nearly complete collapse, then taking that kingdom into the heartland of its greatest Near Eastern rival and smashing them to bits, taking the valuable territory of Syria for himself. There is no doubting that what he's done was remarkable, and when asked how he did it, historians usually fall back pretty quickly on the explanation that Shapililiuma was a genius. I'm not going to dispute that he was a genius, but there's something odd about using that as an explanation. With someone like Alexander the Great, we have details of every major battle and can see the genius in his tactics. With someone like Napoleon, we can put together an almost day-by-day account of his career and see the genius in his strategies. But with Shapililiuma, pretty much all we can say is that he did some conquering very fast. And the sources don't really let us say very firmly how he accomplished it. The record is so scanty that we can't really say if he enjoyed any logistical or numerical advantages. Though, given that the empire had just nearly collapsed, it might be reasonable to assume that there were no logistical or numerical advantages. Though Hittite chariots appear to have made different tactical choices than their neighbors, preferring much heavier, well-armored frames, overall they don't seem to have had any radically superior technology. The few traces of Hittite ironworking that were so celebrated in earlier archaeology have turned out to be, like their Mitanni neighbors, only very occasional experimentation with a material that was mostly as yet difficult to extract and work. A king or other high noble might, might have an iron dagger. But the advantage this conferred was more symbolic than anything else, especially with the inferior smithing techniques still available compared to bronze. The Hittite army enjoyed the advantage of extreme flexibility and professionalism. While we don't have any sense of the numbers in this period, it's likely that the professional component of the Hittite army has been steadily growing for quite some time. If you will recall, the Hittite army was recruited from four places. There were two classes of militia, both what we might call reservists as well as a general draft, and there was a large number of vassal states obligated to provide their own troops. There were also an increasing number of mercenaries, typically fringe-dwelling nomads whose entire tribe will be hired. Then there is the professional, full-time standing army. This last, in normal times, forms the core fighting force around which everything else is organized. But in years when the campaigns were small, or in years like the disastrous times when the citizens and vassals were stripped away and unavailable to be called, this professional force was able to operate completely by itself and handle a good amount of fighting. This is likely why the Hittites were able to recover from the most recent mauling so quickly, because unlike most other nations, they had an army that could persist for a while, even without any land to rule over. But what this also means is that the army has a core of experienced veterans who spend their time drilling. And the Hittites loved to drill in unusual circumstances, practicing ambush and high-speed nighttime maneuvering.
The infantry were trained in two kinds of kit, a fully separate dress, armor, and weapon set for hill and mountain fighting, based around bronze swords and axes, as well as one for open field desert fighting based around spear formations. And infantry, chariots, and logistical support were all drilled for endurance, allowing them to cover ground as quickly as human feet can manage. When a Hittite warrior fought a man from another nation, all else being equal, we have nothing in particular to say that they were, on average, better fighters one-on-one. -on -one. The Hittites were not, say, the Spartans, not even these professional soldiers. But what they excelled at was getting places quicker than expected, fighting in unexpected times and places, and giving themselves the privilege of selecting a battleground and equipping themselves for it. All this is a powerful advantage, but only in the hands of a leader skilled enough to make the most of these unconventional tactics. It isn't like simply being stronger, where the leader takes a back seat to the skill of the warriors. If Shapilaliuma was winning while in command of these professionals drilled in high finesse tactics, then it means that he was capable of using them to the fullest extent. One other thing to mention here, which contributed to the overwhelming speed of Shapilaliuma's first campaign, is that Near Eastern warfare in general has shifted strongly in favor of the attacker. When thinking about siege warfare, there's always a contest between those developing techniques to attack walled cities and those building walls to better resist the attacks. At certain points in history, such as the European Middle Ages, fortifications could be constructed that far exceeded any enemy's ability to punch through them, leading to extended sieges, bloody assaults, and large numerical disparities between attackers and defenders. During the Late Bronze Age, however, the pendulum had swung in the opposite direction where we see very few lengthy sieges undertaken by major powers, and often it's recognized by the defenders that the walls are going to provide so little advantage that they instead would rather march out their chariots and face the enemy in front of the city. Shapilaliuma's genius includes a mastery of the late Bronze Age assault techniques, likely the quicker ones of battering rams, ladders, and towers, and he was able to overwhelm any city settling into a siege in very short order. We often hear of him taking as little as a week to prepare, and then a single bloody assault overwhelms the city. I mention these things partly as a way to help quantify the supposed genius of Shapilaliuma, to show that his brilliance lay in the mastery of the tools which he inherited from the previous kings, but also remind us about a few aspects of Late Bronze Age warfare that will become increasingly important as the Late Bronze Age peaks and then winds down. But now that we have that out of the way, Shapilaliuma ended the last episode demanding vengeance for his slain son against the Egyptians. However, he's immediately distracted by events on every other border of his kingdom. And so, instead of campaigning south like he would prefer, he's forced to delegate to his son, Arnawanda, who will later become King Arnawanda II, to go down and fight the Egyptians. Very little came of Arnawanda's campaign of vengeance, aside from perhaps a bit of raiding down into Egyptian-held Canaan. 
no territory seems to have changed hands and no great victories were recorded. Perhaps Arnuanda lacked the troops to make anything more of this campaign, with the bulk of the army off fighting on three other fronts. Perhaps Arnuanda lacked the ability as a commander that his father seems to have been born with. Perhaps he did enough to satisfy honor, but the tablets commemorating what he did accomplish were simply lost. Whatever the facts of the matter, there's only one known result from this campaign that a certain number of prisoners of war were taken back as slaves to Atusha, who would, unbeknownst to any of them at the time, become the most significant prisoner convoy in Hittite history. But for now, we will leave these prisoners to be sad with their imprisonment, while we return to the final campaigns of Shipbilaliuma. We don't know the order of these three assaults, but two of them have very few details attached, and so we'll look at the less detailed ones first. First up, the Kaskans were causing problems, and Azihayasa in Armenia has reneged on their treaty, and a year or two was required to beat a bit of sense back into both of them again. Next up, Arzawa in western Anatolia has been contained by a permanent border garrison tasked with keeping them occupied, but it seems they formed an alliance with the Ahiawans, the Mycenaean Greeks, in the meantime, and are again stirring up trouble. Shapila the Yuma takes a third campaign season to handle this matter. Arzawa still isn't beaten, but they are forced to be quiet for a bit. The third campaign in the East was a bit different in character than these other two. Having received a solid thrashing at the hands of the Hittites, and being technically bound to a treaty of submission under the Hittite great king, rankled the Mitanni vassals, at least those still remaining. The rapidly expanding Assyria has torn a massive chunk out of the east, and numerous other smaller kingdoms were beginning to take their own bites out of what appeared to be a fresh carcass. Into this situation, what remained of Mitanni fell into a succession conflict between the son of the defeated coward Tushrata, a man named Shatazawa, and the son of the Hittite puppet king Ardatama, named Shatarna. There seems to have been quite a lot of diplomatic wrangling, including a confusing bit about the Hittite king perhaps supporting both at the same time, but the general summary is this. Shatarna held the throne and most of the power, having inherited it from his father. Shatizawa desired to regain the throne, and so he went down to Babylon to ask the Kassites to support his bid for power, in exchange, obviously, for some sort of Babylon-Mitanni alliance. The Babylonian king laughed at Shatizawa, took all his people away, treated him badly, then said, if Shatizawa wants to, he could be a charioteer for Babylon, but any thought of him ever becoming a king was comical. Shatazawa was forced to flee from what may have been an attempted imprisonment, and escaped with nothing but three chariots, two other warriors, two servants, and the shirt on his back. There was only one good option left to him, fleeing to Hattusha. And really, this wasn't even a very good option, since the Hittites were already backing his rival. But somehow the ragged state of Shatazawa was able to move Shapililiuma's generous heart. 
Or maybe not, because Shapilaliuma did not directly offer the throne to Shadazawa, but instead offered him a bunch of military aid and said, If you can win the throne, I'll let you be my puppet. But if you lose, Shatarna will stay as my puppet. Two men enter, and only one man will leave from the Thunderdome of the Hurrian Kingdom, except that Shatarna, seeing his rival getting support from the Hittites, runs over to the Assyrians, who are busy decimating the eastern side of his nation, and promises to be an Assyrian puppet if they defend him against the Hittite puppet. What follows was a bloody puppet show between the two powers, where the two puppeteers quickly entered the ring on their respective sides to try and put a stop to the matter. Shapilaliuma campaigned not against the rebel Mitanni or against Assyria itself, but instead marched on various Assyrian allied cities, knocking out the cities of Irite and Haran. The Assyrian king, meanwhile, chose instead to march directly on Washikani itself, hoping to end the fight in a single swift strike. However, for all that I was just a while ago discussing that siege assault tactics had generally outstripped the power of walls to hold them back, the Assyrians do not seem to have mastered these siege tactics to the degree that Shipilaliuma has, and get stymied at the walls of the Mitanni capital. This gives the Hittites and their Mitanni puppets time to assemble a force and converge on the besiegers, and the Assyrian king prudently withdraws completely before the matter can be pushed into a battle which would likely be unfavorable to him. With the Assyrian king's withdrawal, Shatarna's Assyrian-backed faction quickly crumbles, and Shatizawa, son of the once-despised Tashrata, is put on the Mitanni throne with Hittite blessings. With Mitanni subdued, and having done battle on every front of his kingdom for his entire life, Shapilaliuma spends the year 1323 dealing with the aftermath of a need for vengeance. He had required vengeance against Egypt, but the gods too needed vengeance against Shapilaliuma, for he had murdered his own brother to gain the throne, and the crime remained unanswered in the heavenly scales of cosmic justice. And so, among the prizes from Shapilaliuma's Egyptian vengeance campaign, the prisoners of war taken from the Canaanite raids, the gods had planted the seeds of their own revenge. For Egypt had been consumed for years now by a great plague, and now that plague passes to Hattusha by way of these prisoners, and around 1322 leaps to the king himself and carries him to the gods for his final judgment. Shapilaliuma has pulled the Hittite Empire from almost complete collapse into a great power over his 40 years, first as general, then as king. He not only conquered, but also played the diplomacy game quite adeptly, taking Syria, which had once been a hotly contested battleground of semi-independent cities, and ruling over the entire thing, pushing the Egyptian border all the way south to Byblos in modern-day Lebanon. He is, without a doubt, the greatest king the Hittites have seen since the glory days of Hattushili and Mershili I, and there are plenty of good arguments that can be made to suggest that, in fact, he even exceeded these brilliant founders in terms of the more hotly contested environment he found himself in. And as he wastes away from a plague, 
he has left the Hittite Empire both massive and stable. The Hittites have never before seen their kingdom this large, nor have they seen it this well secured. The ups and downs they've experienced until now are ended. All that's left for them is a century of ups, followed by the final great collapse. And this coming golden age is birthed by Shapililiuma's genius. Later Hittites for sure would regard him as the greatest of all Hittite kings. But now, thankfully, I no longer have to twist my tongue around his unnecessarily difficult name, for his son Arnuwanda takes over, becoming King Arnuwanda II. Alongside Arnuwanda, though, were his two brothers, Tilipanu and Shari Kashu, each of whom was in the peculiar position of being slightly independent and slightly integrated into an order their father had invented. Tilipanu, you may recall, was made viceroy of Aleppo, and was also given extensive freedom in terms of managing the religious affairs of Syria and mediating disputes between vassals. Shari Kashup, meanwhile, was placed in charge of Karshemish, and was put in charge of the standing army in Syria. Arnawanda maintained overall control, but in a situation like this, things could have easily spiraled out of control. But before there could be internal troubles, there were external matters, as the Kaskins again burst out of the north. However, the plague-ravaged empire had difficulty responding to this, as the general dispatch to handle it died on his way to the capital. Shortly after this, Arnawanda himself died of plague, having been king for only some 18 months, and without having managed to deal with the Kaskins. By now, disease was filling the streets with bodies. There was only a single eligible heir remaining, a supposed child named Mershili II. The histories, many written by Mershili himself, called him but a child when taking the throne, and making note of how every foreign lord, and likely a number of vassal lords, were scornful of his inexperience. Indeed, it isn't clear why neither of the Syrian viceroys took the throne, since each was Mershali's elder brother, and both had a power base to take the throne if they really wanted to. But in reality, Mershali II was likely in his early 20s. Not quite the grizzled and venerable figure his father had been, but still perfectly capable of taking the throne without any sort of regency. In this, he seems to have in many ways been extremely fortunate. For sure, anyone taking over after the massive empire his father built would be doing well for themselves. And at the same time, we can hardly consider anyone looking down the barrel of a massive plague as necessarily fortunate. But probably the single biggest contributor to Mershali's success, aside from his own competence, is the fact that his two elder brothers down in Syria appear to have been quite happy to just work with him and assist peacefully without making their own plays to take the throne. Why they did this is unclear. Maybe, maybe they were just decent people working towards the good of their nation. Something we don't explicitly see super often in history. Anyway, the very first thing Mershili needed to accomplish was to handle the Kaskins that his brother had begun dealing with. And so Mershili's first two years saw two full campaigns in the north. 
Neither did much more than drive them away temporarily. But for a Hittite king, any years they can buy without Kaskins is a plus. Bloodshed was involved, but as is typical, we have a list of locations in which the killing occurred, but no details to make this northern expedition any different from any other northern expedition. Meanwhile, Arzawa, in the final years of Shapililiuma's reign, had been busy attempting to undermine the entire foundations of Hittite hegemony in western Anatolia. They made an alliance with the Ahiawa, and were sending all sorts of diplomats and raiding parties to attempt to convince the West Anatolian vassals to flip sides. In fact, it seems that the sudden death of two kings, struck down by the gods and replaced by a supposed youth, had a large impact on everyone's assessment of the situation. Those who may have stayed loyal when expecting the harsh retribution of Shapililiuma were more inclined to abandon the empire under this new young king. Though Mershali would probably have attacked Arzawa no matter what, an occasion arose on the third year of his reign. Mershali's brother, Shari Kushup, leader of Karchemish and one of the top generals in the Hittite Empire, chased some fugitives all the way into western Anatolia for some reason on one of his endless minor campaigns. These ended up at some Arzawan vassal's court, and when Mershili requested their return, he was refused. As we've seen, though, Hittite kings get super worked up over the issue of harboring fugitives, and soon enough, the by now massive Hittite army, featuring both a professional corps that ran well into the thousands of men, perhaps approaching five to 8,000, multiple contingents from nearby vassals, called up citizens and militiamen from around western Anatolia, and perhaps even some mercenaries, all found themselves outside the walls of Arzawa, ready for a fight. As they approached the city, one of the most remarkable things in Hittite history occurred. It seems that the city was just past the horizon, when in the sky a great lightning bolt streaked from east to west, and a peal of thunder was heard when it impacted at the Arzawan capital, a city we now call Ephesus in modern Turkey. A meteor had struck the city, sent by the gods, and apparently either the meteor or debris from the crash had broken the knee of the Arzawat king. Now this incident is recorded in only one place, and can be interpreted in a few ways. The way the Hittites interpreted it is that the gods themselves had sent a divine judgment on the city of Arzawa, and the ensuing battle saw total defeat of the Arzawan forces by the overwhelming and religiously encouraged Hittites. A more modern interpretation is that this object was almost certainly a meteorite, which just happened to land in the city at the most coincidental time, close enough to the Arzawan king that he was either hit by a fragment of the meteorite itself or by some debris from the crash. It is not beyond the realm of possibility that this is the meteorite, which ended up at the famous Temple of Artemis at Ephesus, and even gets a mention in the New Testament Book of Acts. Some think the entire event was simply made up by Mershili, a poeticism imagining the god's favor in physical form composed after his stunning victory, but this seems to me to be needlessly cynical. 
The battle was followed up by a massive flight of terrified Arzawans, both civilians and military men. And they were quite right to flee, for the sack was remarkably brutal, even by Bronze Age standards. It wasn't just the usual orgy of destruction and pillage, though it was, it was that too, but once that was over, every single Arzawan that Mershili's forces could catch was rounded up for transportation. Those who did not get caught fled in mass in three directions. Some took to the sea and shot, sought shelter among the Greek islands with their Ahiawan allies. This included the king, and these proved to be beyond Mershili's reach for the moment. As the Hittite navy is basically a huge blank spot, if indeed they had anything of the sort. When the boats filled up, and the panicked people were left with two other spots, they went to the mountain fortress of Mount Arenanda, or the city of Paranda. Those who scaled Mount Arenanda likely thought themselves quite clever, for here they would surely be safe from the Hittite army. The mountain itself was quite high, quite rocky, and had an impressive fortress built on top of it. To make things even better, it was actually situated on a small island just off the coast, or perhaps a peninsula with a very thin land bridge, depending on which modern mountain you believe is being referred to here. There was no chance at all that Mershili could bring his fearsome chariots to bear against any part of this massive fortress. And Mershili showed that he was not in the least bit bothered by this, sending his thousands of infantry to besiege the city for months on end. Assaults in general could overcome walls in general, but some natural advantages were simply too great to preclude a full-on assault. But nothing could stop a determined siege, and into the autumn the fortress, swollen with refugees, slowly starved. Eventually, the Arzawans came out and said that they would rather be enslaved than starved to death, and so enslaved they were. In the meanwhile, the old king of Arzawa had died in exile, and his two sons had both taken over. One of them stayed in exile, the other went to the city of Paranda to try and make something happen with the people holed up in that city. This more proactive king, Tapalazunawali, held the gates when Mershili came knocking, demanding the city's immediate surrender. However, it was nearly winter, and quite unusually for a classical Hittite army, though apparently a bit more common since Shapililiuma's reign, the entire army was not disbanded for the winter, and instead made camp at a nearby river crossing until the return of spring. Of course, I was just talking about how siege craft has become so much more advanced than wall building, but note that whereas Shapililiuma was able to take the towns in the predominantly wood and mud brick cities of Syria, Mershili is attacking fortifications where stone is far more easily accessible as a building material, and having a far harder time as a result. Indeed, recall that Shapililiuma was actually unable to finish off the Arzawans at any point, and while we aren't completely sure why this is, perhaps the stronger fortifications were able to fend him off more effectively. Anyway, with the return of spring came a renewed assault. Tapalazuna Wali got together whatever was left of the Arzawan military and met Mershili in battle. 
Though he was soundly defeated, he still managed to get his royal hind end back behind the substantial walls of Paranda. They held out a bit longer, but the Hittites were able to completely cut off the city's water supply, and in short order, the people here were begging to be enslaved rather than wholly butchered. All told, an estimated 65,000 humans were taken from the kingdom of Arzawa and resettled as serfs and slaves throughout the rest of the Hittite Empire. Taking a lesson from history, Mershili did not put them all in one place, and the Arzawan nation was completely annihilated. This capital ruined, and the people either slaughtered or transported. But recall the incident which caused the whole thing, where some fugitives escaping justice had hidden away in the nation of an Arzawan vassal. It wasn't actually Arzawa that was holding these people, and everyone knew it. Rather, it was a minor lord named Manapa Tarunta, of the Seha Riverlands, who had, it seems, gone back and forth in allegiance more than once. His betrayals had earned him execution, and Mershali was finally on his way to deliver kingly justice. Manapatar Hunta felt no shame in pleading in the most abject of languages, swearing to hand over the fugitives to never betray the king again. Mershali's response was stern. Formerly, when your brothers expelled you from your land, I commended you to the men of Karkisha. I paid off the men of Karkisha for you, but you did not support me there in the Sheha Riverlands. You supported Uhaziti, my enemy. Now will I take you in subjugation. Mershali, it seems, had purchased mercenaries for Manapatar Hunta to regain his throne, and the ingrate had repaid him with treachery. But an unexpected thing happened, even more unexpected when you consider that Mershali has just reduced the land of Arzawa to basically nothing. Mershali recounts later in his chronicle, I would certainly have marched against him and destroyed him utterly. Which, by the way, does not seem like an idle boast here, but a clear statement of fact. But he sent forth his mother to meet with me. She came and fell at my knees and spoke to me as follows. My lord, do not destroy us. Take us, my lord, into subjugation. And since a woman came to meet me and fell at my knees, I gave way to the woman and thereupon did not march to the Sheha River land. And I took Manapatar Hunta and the Sheha River lands back as vassals. Now what are we to make of a man who will slaughter a whole country on a flimsy pretext, but then spare a clearly guilty nation because of a mother's passionate plea? Some would see a man whose kingship is a decent, deeply personal one where abstractions like the good of the nation are easily overcome by very direct appeals to a base sort of personal morality. Now, some consider this good, some consider it bad. Really, all comes down to your politics. However, there is a more cynical reading here, that when at all possible, the Hittites preferred to not replace leaders, even when they failed. The idea being that a king who has failed to the point that he was almost executed may be far more careful to avoid it happening again compared to a new king who may feel the need to test the boundaries of the feudal relationship once again. 
It's rather like when you screw up at work and are the root cause of a big problem. You will, in the future, be extra careful to avoid making that exact same mistake again, whereas a new hire may fall into the same pit you once did. But the overall point here is that Mershilly, though perhaps initially mocked for his youth and inexperience, has in his first four years managed to do something even his famous father had failed at, breaking the greatest power in Western Anatolia so completely that no West Anatolian nation would ever again rise to challenge the Hittite kings for the rest of the Bronze Age. In his fifth and sixth years, Mershili campaigned against the Cascans. Interestingly, Mershili appears to have identified and located the specific tribe of Cascans who had burnt down Hattusha at the start of his father's reign, some 40 or 50 years ago now, a tribe called the Ziharia. This attack was, in most respects, typical, except that it appears to have been unusually brutal in the aftermath of the fighting, or perhaps Mershili simply took the time to record the standard, very high levels of brutality involved in these campaigns. This was the fifth year. In Mershili's sixth year, which, by the way, we can put this much detail into his first ten years because he recorded a detailed chronicle of these first years, He also headed north, but in this year something unusual happened. Rather than fighting a disorganized bunch of tribes, a man named Pehunia had taken over. In Mershali's words, Pehunia was not like a Kaskin. Rather, he was like a king, for apparently the idea of organization was so alien to the Kaskins that Pehunia's kingship appeared to be something remarkable to the Hittites. When Mershili demanded that this new Kaskin king simply surrender, he did not merely refuse to surrender, but also refused to battle the Hittites in Kaskin territory. Instead, he vowed that he would devastate them so much that all the battles would only be fought in Hittite territory and would all be Kaskin victories. Neither prediction, as it happened, came true, and the Kaskins were quieted for quite some time afterwards. This is not the end of problems in the north, but as we close up this week, there are problems stirring in the south. Problems that will be solved with a deft mix of diplomacy and violence. The southern border, where Hittite vassals rub shoulders with Egyptian vassals, is growing to be a major hotspot, and we aren't far now from the greatest battle of the Bronze Age. Next time, though, we'll be looking a bit more at the issues Mershili faces on the home front, including the plague that continues to absolutely devastate the Hittite lands. Indeed, it may have been the case that the 65,000 enslaved Arzawans were required just to fill the hole left by all the fields left empty by the plague. So join us next time as we continue to flip back and forth between diplomacy warfare, and spiritual matters, covering the quite well-documented and accomplished reign of King Mershali II. Thank you for listening.